Hey, Elizabeth Slattery here. Before we get into today's episode, we would be so grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating and a review. And go ahead and tell a friend about it. I'll wait. Okay, done. Now on to the show. Hi, dissidents. This season will be dropping in with mini episodes profiling four different Supreme Court justices. In this first mini dist, we sat down with Mark Paoletta, co-editor of the new book, Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. Please note these episodes are not meant to be full accounts of the justices' jurisprudence, but just a short peek into their lives. We hope this one gives you some insight into the indomitable and remarkable Justice Thomas. Enjoy! The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. I'll start off by saying it's not overstatement, but Justice Thomas's life in terms of where he started and where he ended is more stunning, right? Amazing, whatever you want to call it, than just about anybody in public life that, as, as we know it. Justice Thomas was born in the deep South, in the middle of segregation, down in the South, state-enforced sanctioned segregation. And literally a mother, the father abandoned the, the family, but you know, she was a maid, she was uneducated. She was picking oysters shucking oysters when she was nine years old, I think, for pennies. And so this is the environment he grew up in, right? Which is he was born in a shanty, at home in a shanty in Pinpoint, Georgia, which is about 10 miles or so outside of Savannah. In 1948, June 23rd, delivered by a midwife who came over from a, a local community called Sandfly. Clarence Thomas has about as humble of a beginning as it gets, born at home in abject poverty in the segregated South. So he um, is born, his mom has three kids before she's 20, and they're actually living in Pinpoint with his aunt. Clarence starts off going to school at Haven Home School, again, segregated school. He's wandering the streets, no supervision, and, you know, he's six, seven years old. And at a certain point, the house that they're living in, it had one light bulb, Uh, no other running electricity. It didn't have a toilet inside. There was an outhouse outside. You know, it was like holes in the walls that you clogged up with um, paper and that sort of thing. So it was as low on the totem pole as you can get. And that house burns down and he goes to live with his mother, who's working as a maid in Savannah. And they go to live in this house and Justice Thomas describes it as the worst place He's ever lived the worst experience. And it's for about, you know, eight, eight months or so. And it's in Savannah. And that's where it's just this disgusting open sewer uh, in the front part of the house. And he's sleeping in a, cu- a couch, like a little chair. He's got one bed in there. The two brothers are, go to live with, with uh, his mother. And she's, again, trying to make ends meet. It's very, very tough. And after, like, it's, again, it's like seven or eight months, she talks to her father Justice Thomas's grandfather, and he agrees, along with his, his grandmother, to take Justice Thomas and, the, and his brother Myers to go live with them. According to Justice Thomas, the boys packed everything they had into one paper grocery bag each and made the fateful walk a couple of blocks to their grandparents' house. This move would change the trajectory of his life. 
And his grandfather is, again, I think born in 1907 in segregated South. And he has nine months of education. So he goes to the, basically the third grade, but he's illiterate. You know, he can barely read. He, he can't read. He kind of makes out, you know, passages in the Bible and things like that words. But he's this proud man who has this discipline to make it in this world and provide for him and his family. And it's that upbringing that changes Justice Thomas's life completely. And the sort of juxtaposition of it is there's Myers and his brother, and then his sister, Emma May, who doesn't go live with the grandparents, stays back in Savannah and fast forward into the 80s. And, you know, she, that's why Justice Thomas becomes so concerned with these sort of the social programs and the affirmative action programs and the social welfare programs that are destroying the Black community because they're making them wards of the state. And that's what happens to many people down there, including his sister. Justice Thomas's grandfather, Myers Anderson, ran a tight ship. He goes to live with his grandfather. And as, his, as he says in his book, it's rules and regulations. The damn vacation is over, he says to these two young boys who, who show up. And he's built this house himself, Myers Anderson, I think for $600, you know, his own cash with his, his cousins and family members. They, they built this home. And you know, Justice Thomas Clarence calls it a palace. And his father... Justice Thomas called his grandfather father or daddy. His father has all these rules about how you're going to work. And every day after school, you're going to go with me on my oil truck. So his grandfather started his own business and he's making it, right? He's not making a lot of money, but he can provide and live in his own home and raise these two boys. He's going to teach his uh, grandsons how to get through this world. And he enrolls them in the Catholic schools. And that's where he meets the Irish nuns. Like Justice Thomas's grandfather, the nuns were very strict. It's a segregated school. And their view is these kids are equal. We hate segregation. We think it's a terrible system. We love these kids, but we're not going to let them fall into victim status. We're going to hold them to the highest standards. And, and that's what they do. Justice Thomas's first experience with a desegregated school wasn't until 1964 when he left to enter the seminary. But even then, he was the first Black student to enter the school. They had just desegregated in Savannah. So he was one of two black students who entered St. John Vianney Minor Seminary. It's like a high school, but it's for young men who were preparing for this, you know, had thoughts of going to the seminary. And this was going to be the high school where they sort of figured that out, right? And it's, a, it's in the Isle of Hope, which is kind of a little bit outside of Savannah. And it was a boarding school uh, where, you, where you went away. Just as Thomas worked hard to show that he was equal to anybody else and that skin color was irrelevant, he sought to excel so that if anybody was going to judge him or discriminate against him, they were going to have to admit it was because of their racism and not because of any defect of his own. This attitude is reflected in his yearbook caption. Blew that test only in 98. To the future Supreme Court justice, getting a 98 out of 100 was as good as failing. And what he says is, I know I'm going to be treated different. I know I'm going to be discriminated against. I'm not going to allow that person to have a single you know, wiggle room to say it was for something else. He says, checkmate, I'm gonna make it so all you have is my race. I'm going to call you out, I'm going to expose you. One can imagine that Justice Thomas's experience working hard to overcome adversity and seeing his grandfather do the same despite having less than a year of education may have informed some of his views about racial preferences. As Mark said, There was just a conference actually, and he was talking about how when you take away like test scores, like the LSAT, you're robbing me of my work. I'm as good as you. 
I'm going to show you I'm as good as you. And when you take that away and say, oh, no, you, you don't have to do that because, you know, you lower the standards and they want to take away the work of his grandfather or the nuns who helped prepare them for this world. That's what gets Justice Thomas angry or, or, or annoyed with that attitude that infantilizes and says, you can't make it. I'm going to give you all these excuses so that you don't have to be held accountable. And it really wipes away the great progress and great work of people like his grandfather, who overcame all of this terrible discrimination and did great things and never would think of themselves as victims. Racial preferences also cut against Justice Thomas's tendency to look for commonalities rather than differences. He grows up in segregation and it's, you can't go to certain parks. You can't, you can't do certain things, but it's when he goes into the white schools where he really encounters that, like the, the personal racism, right? Or the personal friction. And one of the things Justice Thomas says though, right? Is that when he shows up in these schools, he looks around and he says, you're white, I'm black. I got that. You know, what makes us similar? And if you look at his life in terms of, you know, his interactions with people and how he relates to them, he's always looking, even to this day, for that when he's talking to a person, whether it's a janitor or it's a Supreme Court justice, is what they're interested in. What's our commonality? And what can we talk about? What do we have in common? Um, you know, and he says something like, we're both in, we're in the seminary. We're scared to death of the, the priest who's the teacher. Regardless of his own attitude emphasizing similarities, while at the minor seminary, he experienced racism firsthand. Again, he goes to St. John Vianney, where he's the, the first two Black students. He's one of them to go to that school. The other one, Richard Chisholm, actually drops out the next year. So Clarence is the only Black student, I think, for the rest of his time there. At that school, he does have a number of encounters that are racist, right? That have this searing impact on him, including the note. Sitting in class one day, Justice Thomas felt a note drop into his lap from a neighboring student. He looked at it turned it over and read what it said. I like Martin Luther King. Then he opened it up and saw... Dead. In his memoirs in our new book, he talks about that makes you really angry and, you know, and have rage in you, right? But to lash out and, and, and sort of let your anger take you over. He said he learned that from his grandfather. He sees all those indignities that you, you, you would suffer. And he says anger is at once empowering, but it's also self-destructive. So he would go and on all these different sort of racial episodes and go pray in the chapel and ask for strength. And as he said, to focus on what I came here for. And so it's an amazing resilience. And then he goes off to the major seminary, the seminary in, in Missouri, Immaculate Conception. And that's where Martin Luther King is assassinated. And uh, one of his, the seminarians says, uh, somebody calls out Martin Luther King's been shot. And then somebody says, I hope the SOB dies. And it's at that moment where Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas, loses his vocation and wants to leave and he finishes out the year. Now he had been, I think, having second thoughts about being in the seminary already, but that was the part that just extinguishes it. And as he says in our book and, and in his memoirs, you know, that was the moment he was out. The hardest part of leaving the seminary was having to face his grandfather. And so he goes back home, he finishes out the year, he goes back home to tell his grandfather. And again, this was a big moment for Justice Thomas to go to the seminary. And when he said when he asked his grandfather can I go to the seminary? This is to the high school. His grandfather said, if you go, you can't quit. And don't shame the race, he says to Clarence. Uh, and so when he comes back home and tells his grandfather that he's leaving, the grandfather doesn't care what the reason is. 
he kicks him out of the house and Clarence goes back to live with his mother in this small little house. This was the late 1960s, a tumultuous time not only for Clarence Thomas, but for our country. That summer, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, which, along with the prior assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., had a profound impact on him. As Justice Thomas himself told the story, nothing at the time felt right. But one door was open. He was accepted to Holy Cross. Once there, he found his way into the company of Marxists and founded the university's first Black student union. Yes, dear listeners, Justice Thomas was a combat boot, overall-wearing revolutionary. But not for long. A turning point came after he was swept up in an angry mob and participated in a destructive riot. Thomas stopped at a chapel on the way home and prayed for the anger to go away. As he tells it, that was the beginning of returning to where he started. Thomas was soon accepted to Yale Law School, and his son, Jamal, was born his 2L year. The birth of Jamal awakened Thomas to what his son's prospects would be, given the politics of the time. Justice Thomas felt that many of the policies that were aimed at helping racial minorities had the practical effect of making things worse. He feared his son would get caught up in the various social experiments percolating at the time, which had destructive effects on their subjects. Still, he was a registered Democrat, so it pained Justice Thomas when he accepted a job out of law school with Missouri Attorney General John Danforth, a Republican. Despite attending Yale Law School, it was the only job offer he received, a fate similar to future colleagues Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Thomas observed that employers assumed he had been a recipient of affirmative action and discounted his achievements relative to white applicants. Later, when Danforth was elected to the Senate, Thomas joined him in Washington, D.C. as a legislative aide. In 1981, he was confirmed as Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the Department of Education. In the following year, he was confirmed as Chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Later, he was nominated by George H.W. Bush to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. By then, he had married Virginia, or Ginny, Thomas. His first confirmation hearing was uneventful, but that doesn't mean he wasn't subject to criticism. From the outset of his public life, he was attacked for his politics and branded captive to the white man or a traitor to his race. That criticism only increased when he was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1991. He was nominated to replace Thurgood Marshall, which upset those who sympathized with Marshall and disagreed with Thomas. After the conclusion of the Senate Committee's confirmation hearings, an FBI interview with Anita Hill was leaked to the press. Hill had accused Thomas of inappropriate and flirtatious conduct, and the confirmation hearings were reopened. At one of the subsequent hearings, chaired by the junior senator from Delaware, better known today as President Joe Biden, Justice Thomas passionately defended himself, coining a memorable phrase to describe the committee's process. I think something is dreadfully wrong with this country when any person, any person in this free country would be subjected to this. This is not a closed room. There was an FBI investigation. This is not an opportunity to talk about difficult matters privately or in a closed environment. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the U.S. Senate rather than hung from a tree. 
Justice Thomas was confirmed 52 to 48, having won the vote of 41 Republicans and 11 Democrats. Since then, and perhaps because of it, he's earned a reputation of sticking to his principles, come what may. After all, he had seen what it means to not stick by your principles. From his days in the seminary, when some of the priests wished Martin Luther King would go away and not cause trouble, to his confirmation hearings, where supposed friends and allies abandoned him out of fear. The reaction to Justice Thomas's opinions has not always been positive, but he pays no mind. And right from the get-go, in the very first conference, Justice Thomas is bringing Scalia, I think in Rehnquist, over to him on a vote. And yet, he's portrayed as Scalia's lackey, as Scalia's puppet. The most racist things you can say are said about Justice Thomas. And he just keeps kind of trucking along and doing his, as he says, my J-O-B, my job. It's not complicated. Do your job. What I have found in in being a friend of his and, and watching him is Anyone who thinks they're going to tell Justice Thomas what to do or think is just crazy. And he's got this fierceness uh, on just being independent and, and staying true to his principles. You know, and when you think about even on the court, uh, especially on the court, where he's laying down all these dissents on different topics and areas that are now becoming, you know, majority or close to majority opinions. And he just was pummeled and criticized by the press, by the legal establishment for a long time. And I can tell you, he doesn't care. And it it doesn't make any difference to him. And it almost makes him stronger, right? The more you push against him. And if you remember in the the confirmation hearings, he says, I don't run from bullies. I never cry uncle. I'm not going to cry uncle now. He learned that from his grandfather. His grandfather said to him in the 80s, when Clarence was under attack, he calls his grandfather, daddy, daddy, what should I do? You know, his, his grandfather said, you got to stand up for what you believe in. You know, he talks about his grandfather, this omnipresent sort of, I can't remember the, the words, you know, tough guy that had these arbitrary rules and was harsh and all that. And he realized, and just like the nuns, that he, they were doing it for his own good, right? He meets them later, even his grandfather, when his grandfather's playing with uh, Justice Thomas's son, Jamal, his grandson, and he's giving him all these fruit loops. He's giving him all these cereals or he's, he's giving him ice cream, whatever he wants. He's given to Jamal. And, and Clarence is like, why weren't you like this with me? You, you know what I mean? And, and he realized it was because his job was to raise, you know, his son, his grandson in a way that he'd be able to get through this hard world, right? This unforgiving world. His grandfather took him out to the farm in 1957. I think it is on Christmas day, they drive out to this farm, which is a little outside of Savannah in Liberty County. And they build a house and farm out there. And his grandfather wanted to keep him away from the riffraff, I think he called them, of his friends in the city, who he thought could be a bad influence on, on Clarence and his younger brother Myers. So they go out there and they work their tail off. They get up at four in the morning. It's that work ethic. He said to me, planting beans or picking beans, these menial tasks help you in terms of doing your job and you keep doing it. And you never know when the kind of, in terms of like chipping away at a wall, like the Berlin wall, or the, the wall of China, like when it's going to change, you just do your job day in and day out. Uh, and I think he still approaches his life that way. And you just keep doing it and you let come what may, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to do what's right. Come what may. Perhaps it's this steadfastness in principle that has made him a prolific dissenter on the court, advocating for heterodox viewpoints or for overturning cases when others stick to the mainstream or sing the praises of abiding by precedent. 
Whatever one thinks of Justice Thomas's opinions, one can and should appreciate his fierce independence and willingness to say what he believes, even if he's standing alone. Thanks for listening to Dis. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. If you give a pig a pancake. Oh, it's it's in the same series as the give if, if you give a mouse a cookie books. I don't I don't know. He you know, he asks for all the same things as the as the mouse. He he wants a he wants a he wants the cookie and he wants a party and he wants to go to the beach and he wants to go here and there and everywhere. Yeah. Quit messaging me, everyone. Just put on your your do not disturb. I am. Very important. Do not disturb. Okay. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that sad? Everything they owned. And he said it wasn't even full. I mean, I was like crying reading this last night. And I know all this stuff, but I just, anyway, I love Justice Thomas so much. Okay. I know. Continue. You reminded of Bloopers. (laughs) Justice Thomas observed that, Justice Thomas observed that (laughs) employ, this is a wordy sentence. (laughs) 